Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And that's whatever type of company you work with and laugh, I think we have to have some fun along the way. Well, hello, I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. If you have any questions or comments related to this show or any commercial real estate endeavors, you're invited to give us a call. Our phone number is 888-612-SHOW, or you can email us at info at CREshow.com. You can also reach us through your favorite social media. You can find them all at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're going to look at winning environmental strategies. strategies. <laughs> all right. We're going to start with some tips related to phase one and phase two environmental audits. Plus, we'll share some strategies to help you close more transactions. Then we'll progress into some of the more recent processes to gauge and assess and mitigate risk. We'll also explore some ways investors may be able to create some nice returns with environmentally challenged real estate. Let's meet our guests. First, please welcome Robert Bronner, president, One Consulting Group, a full-service environmental firm whose services include due diligence, site assessments, and remediation. Robert has supervised over 5,000 Phase One environmental site assessments. He's resolved to closure over 1,000 subsurface investigations, and he has personally inspected over 50 million square feet of commercial property for indoor air quality and hazardous building material concerns. Robert, you must be tired after all that, right? Some days it's a long living. But Michael, uh, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about um, some winning environmental strategies so you guys don't lose those deals. That's great. Well, thank you. Also, please welcome Ken Burrell, Managing Partner, Synapsis Services, with a keen focus and expertise on environmental matters related to business transactions and operations. Synapsis utilizes a comprehensive approach to risk management, innovative insurance programs, and professional business advisory services. Ken, welcome to the show. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me. Also, please welcome John Spinrad, partner Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm in Atlanta, Miami, and Washington, D.C. that serves the business needs of a growing public and private companies. John Spinrad is a partner in the real estate and litigation practices and leads the environmental and natural resources practice. John, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Well, these guys, you guys are uh, in luck here. These guys are so smart. I really checked them out uh, on our panel today. Their GPA average is 4.0, you know? And last time I scored that high, I was on a breathalyzer. (laughs) So so you guys are in uh, luck. All right, well, first of all, I'd I'd like to talk about a phase one environmental audit. Uh, Most buyers should get them and and lenders want them. Uh, What's included in a phase one and what is actually done there, Robert? Michael, first and foremost, uh, a phase one environmental site assessment is performed to determine if a commercial piece of property has, has the potential for impact from hazardous substances or petroleum hydrocarbons. Uh, it's an investigative tool where we do research, a site visit, and we wear out some shoe leather researching governmental databases, historical directories, aerials, and we interview governmental um, employees to determine if there's been any historical problems with the site or if we identify any with ongoing um, site operations. So you don't, just, you don't just go there and smoke a cigarette and say it's fine? Not at a gas station. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> again, it's performed in accordance with the, uh, the ASTM 1527-05 standard, which sets the um, requirements for what is a proper phase one. And it's performed to um, 
uh, comply with the all appropriate inquiry standard uh, required by CERCLA to uh, obtain the landowner liability protections uh, afforded to it by the, the federal and state government. Okay. Purchasing a property. All right. And what is the typical cost and time frame these days for a phase one? It's dependent on the property. Uh, again, uh, a one acre um, parcel with a small commercial building of 2,000 square feet, you're looking at around 1400 to $1,600, two to three weeks to complete. Um, larger high-rise or industrial property, the cost will uh, scale accordingly depending on what larger issues may be at hand at those properties. But again, your, your ranges are, you know, I'd say $1,400 to $3,500 and a two to three week uh, time period to get a final report. Um, ideally, you'd like to get some advanced information in an email or a fax uh, within a week uh, from your consultant that identifies anything that's coming down the pipe that might create a problem or a hurdle to uh, lending or closing on the property. Okay. Is there any price difference if I'm driving a Porsche or an old pickup truck when I call you? And I uh, if you're driving the, the truck, I'll charge you more. <laughs> okay. Usually those guys are the cagiest, and they, they're the ones that know how to keep it in their pocket. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Ken, what should someone consider when they're choosing an environmental consultant? Well, I think you want to make sure they really are one to start <laughs> yeah. out with. Um, but That'd be a good thing. Look at, um, obviously, if they're licensed specifically, if there's a state requirement for such or a certain activity. Um, you, you want experience in the industry uh, and the focus on exactly what you're looking to do process-wise at the site. Um, you know, understanding the if it's a, it's a gas station site or something more complex in industrial nature, what could have happened there and just a, a focus in that area. Uh, you, you want to max, match the expertise with the project. Um, make sure that um, you've got uh, the right person in a consulting firm on, on the right job. And in some cases, you're looking for compliance. You really want to understand your need. So it may be a compliance issue. It may be due diligence, um, you know, understanding process or ongoing operations. So it's, it's a combination of, uh, of the prior. Okay. And uh, to add from the legal standpoint, you want to make sure that the consultant has uh, the correct insurance, errors and omissions insurance, pollution liability insurance. And then you want to look carefully at the consultant's standard terms and conditions. That's the small print on the back of the contract that limits your rights if you don't read them carefully. So oftentimes a consultant will limit its liability in the event of a mistake to a refund of what you paid or a relatively low liability limit, and you want to try and negotiate that to something more reasonable in the unlikely event of a mistake. Okay. Those are very good points. Well, what about if a buyer gets a phase one environmental audit, they get it completed, they pay for it, Robert, and then they go to a lender, pick a lender. Will the lender typically be okay to, to use the audit the buyer has just paid for, or might they require another one to be done by a firm that, that they pick? I would tell you in most instances, um, the, the phase one will be fine for mm -hmm. the lenders moving forward. Uh, with one caveat, uh, specific um, lender groups do have um, a consultant list that they only use those consultants um, for uh, environmental site assessments. Um, the Fannie Freddie lenders out there uh, f typically pick their consultants and, and would require that you know a Blackstone group do the phase one as opposed to the borrowers or the, uh, again, the borrower's consultant. But to, to John's earlier point, if the consulting company carries uh, the expertise, can show that they can do the work and have experience in that sector, as well as are carrying the proper insurance requirements, typically um, the borrower can get their consultant pre-qualified prior to closing so they don't have to repeat those costs. But okay. there is a little bit of effort that goes into that. Okay. So it'd be prudent to look and see if, uh, if you're looking at three different lenders possibly to see if this, the consultant you want to use is on the list already, right? 
or if you can, uh, or if the borrower can push towards getting that consultant approved for that project or moving forward with that lender relationship. With okay. And, and Robert, if you could share with us when you're doing a environmental audit, uh, based on the class of property, the type of property, what are some of the things you're looking for in each property class? Absolutely. Uh, in a nutshell, you have uh, gas stations, you're looking for petroleum hydrocarbon impact. Uh, in the multifamily arena, you're typically in soil and groundwater issues, you're looking for an offsite dry cleaner or an offsite gas station or maybe an on-site heating oil tank. And then you get into building material issues such as asbestos and lead-based paint. Uh, in the retail strip center arena, you're really looking for that on-site dry cleaner because that creates an on-site source issue that a potential buyer may be financially and legally responsible to resolve after they take title to the property. Um, once you get into the industrial markets, uh, those issues become pretty varied, varied and myriad. And uh, you know, I, these guys next to me can speak a little bit. And Ken, on that. underwriting, uh, uh, what do you look for for specific property types? Well, it, it'll be a combination of the um, of the factors Robert mentioned, but it's also going to deal with a chance of loss. So the underwriters are going to look for how does affect actually having a loss under the under the policy. So if we've got a, a prior industrial use with some known constituents or contaminants, well, what's the future use going to be? Well, we have a contributing source, maybe where a future buyer or operation may contribute to that and, and, and cause uh, that contaminant uh, to, to be at a higher concentration in the future, or will a capital improvement um, in the future affect that constituent maybe that has to be removed that didn't have to be removed before or, or result in discovery of something that you didn't know about? Okay. And John, how about on the legal end? Uh, well, one of the issues you're most concerned about is is not just the presence of hazardous substances, but what's the impact of it? Is it going to devalue the property? Is it going to result in a claim by the workers who work there? Or if it migrates to a neighbor from a, a claim from a, from a next door neighbor? So you're looking at not just the, the presence of it, but also what, what the potential for a claim will be. Okay. And I think to, to drill down into that, the, the consultant would go out looking to quantify that environmental risk in terms of its cost to um, remediate, its cost to closure, um, the, the time frame, because that impacts a deal in terms of uh, interest rate risks uh, and the such. But again, the idea is to come to a, a practical um, discussion and summary of how does this impact the finances of the deal and you know what is this buyer legally responsible? Okay. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to look at some ways to mitigate risk with some possible insurance uh, activities. And also, what would you do if you find out a neighboring property is contaminated near your property? After a quick break, more winning environmental strategies. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And Cone Resnick, providing forward-thinking advice to help navigate business and financial issues. Visit coneresnick.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related subjects, check out our on-demand show podcast. 
For example, we just completed update shows on various sectors, including the office, retail, and a show on the industrial market with an enlightening investment tip. You don't want to miss that. You can access the shows anytime on your smartphone or computer. Visit iTunes or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're exploring winning environmental strategies. strategies. <laughs> My guests are Robert Bronner, One Consulting Group, Ken Burrell, Snap Services, and John Spinrad, Arnold Golden Gregory. And Robert, I'd like to talk about uh, if you have a phase one, it raises some concerns. Uh, you don't have to necessarily throw in the towel right there, do you? Absolutely not. And um, I, I think in today's uh, environmental due diligence, um, what we do uh, for these transactions prior to 20 years ago, um, our work doesn't produce a yes or no answer. It re- there really are ways to come in, quantify these risks, and come up with strategies to resolving them. And um, there's several out there. Uh, now, what we do is a lot more fun than it was 15, 20 years ago. Because right. when you did your due diligence back then and you found a problem, then you just walked away. Yeah, I remember that. And now, um, <laughs> now with the changes in laws, the availability of environmental insurance, state brownfield programs and other liability protection devices, you can approach a problem, quantify it, and still close a deal with those environmental risks quantified but dealt with in much more concrete ways. Right. And you brought up insurance. And Ken, if we could talk about that now, how can you use environmental insurance to eliminate or reduce potential risks from cleanup costs and other related liabilities? You know, Michael, it's typically in a transaction, the concern is is getting a a box around the risk with a buyer and the seller where they can both quantify exactly what it's worth and put a value around it. And that's really what the insurance does. It puts a backstop with a third-party insurance company, excess of a deductible on, on what the environmental liabilities for any transaction would, would be applicable to. Okay. And give me an example, if you will, of, of, a, of a transaction uh, recently where someone has used insurance to, to save a deal or, or mitigate their risk. Uh, We were just involved in a transaction in Maine where a private equity group was buying an industrial property, and there was uh, a significant amount of liability related to off-site tort liability, bodily injury from uh, potential exposure and off-site monitoring wells. And uh, between the two parties, they couldn't get comfortable without insurance on how that indemnity would apply between the parties. So insurance wrapped around that exposure and would, would cover both parties in the event of future loss. Okay. And anybody can pay for it that wants to pay for it, right? On either side of the table. Absolutely. It can be structured to where either the buyer or the seller pays for insurance. They both can be covered or one or the other can be covered. And it can be backed um, to basically back a contract between the parties as well. Okay. It's a great tool for uh, covering the small risk of a large problem. When neither side wants to be stuck with that risk, insurance is a great tool for for, um, bridging that gap. Okay. And Robert, uh, if I know I need a phase one and I know, hey, there's a dry cleaner on the site, uh, can I streamline the phase one process uh, by going ahead and and saying, all right, well, let's go ahead and test that within the phase one and streamline the timing, the cost in any way? Well, I think rather than going quickly into a testing scenario, what you can do is maybe before you go under contract or early in your inspection period, um, do a records review of that on-site dry cleaner or that off-site gas station that may have an issue. And you can glean a lot of information from public record to get you that much further ahead of the game. The, the, you know, the, 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 the risk to going ahead and testing is, let's say we test for the dry cleaning fluid, but then determine that that retail center was built on top of an old landfill. <laughs> and then we didn't test for what we should, the, the historical issue we should have. 
Um, but in some cases, uh, especially on, on jobs where it's a big portfolio and out of state, we may go ahead and test while we're doing phase one work when there's an obvious an issue on a site. So that, that can streamline the process and save a little bit of money um, on some of the larger deals. Okay. There, and there are some transactions just because of the nature of the property where you know you're going to want to do some testing, not for contamination necessarily in the ground or groundwater, but for building materials. Mm-hmm. If you have an older building uh, where there's, uh, especially if it's a residential building, you, you know you'll want to come in unless there are complete records and test for lead-based paint or asbestos or radon or lead in the drinking water. And those are the kinds of things you can add to the phase one because you know you need to do them at the outset and then wait for the results of the phase one to see if there's some subsurface testing you want to do as well. Okay. That's right. And to that point, again, in the multifamily sector, while going out and doing a phase one on a large apartment complex scheduled for renovation, the environmental consultant can do a, a preliminary sampling for asbestos content in those building materials, and then you're that much further ahead in the game and kind of quantifying costs associated with the renovation. Okay. And talk about quantifying these risks. Ken, what are some ways that uh, you, you can quantify these risks today? Well, you would start often with a phase one or phase two, do some due diligence as applicable. Um, and then you could look to cap that risk with insurance products, as we've already talked about. Um, just putting, a, again, a box around the uncertainty that exists. Okay. And what if you're involved with a property that requires cleanup? Is it, is it prudent to get cleanup cost estimates from multiple companies, John? Um, if it's a small project, it's probably not worth your time. If you've got a fifteen or $25,000 removal, you might as well just proceed with the consultant you have, assuming they have that capability or have the ability to sub out the work. But if you have a significant uh, uh, significant removal or, or cleanup, and particularly if there are a lot of unknowns, uh, different cleanup companies will approach those risks differently. So I worked on a large removal project. It was a federal Superfund site where we were dredging a river, miles of a river. And there was a lot unknown about uh, how much contamination there was. And we ended up having bids that ranged from $11 million to $44 million for a fixed-priced remediation. So it was definitely worth going out to the market and, and bidding that one out. Okay. I think it's important also on a, on a complex project to look at a third-party validation. So maybe a consulting firm that was not involved in the bid process. So actually going to bid to conduct the cleanup. Um, in a completely uh, unbiased opinion on what the cost structure may look like and different remedies to uh, conduct the cleanup activity. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, John, what do you say to a seller who does not want his property tested because he does not want to know if there are any issues? Well, that is a constant tension in commercial Mm -hmm. transactions because the seller is usually the one that has the obligation to report the finding of contamination on its property Mm -hmm. uh, to the government. So typically what we'll do is we'll enter into uh, a contract or an access agreement that requires the buyer and its consultant to keep the results confidential. The only time that uh, an agreement like that won't work is if you're dealing with a public entity that's subject to a Freedom of Information Act or a Sunshine Law, and then they can't keep their records closed from the public. But otherwise, that usually will solve the problem and allow the testing to go forward. Okay. And Ken? Um, also, from um, from an insurance standpoint, you know, it, the carrier will typically want some level of due diligence to give a baseline. So that's where the phase one and phase two comes in again. However, in some cases, you know, the insurance marketplace may be willing to take that risk where the, a buyer and seller can't get comfortable with otherwise testing a property. They may include, you know, some restrictions, what we call moral hazard restrictions that would prohibit uh, a buyer or seller from testing the property voluntarily in the future. 
um, we weren't likely to trigger a claim, um, you know, upon themselves, but still give you know, third party protection. Okay. We're going to have to take a short break and we get back. We're going to talk about that a little further, including the uh, environmental consultant himself. When does he have to report these findings, regardless of what the contract between the buyer and seller says? And we'll look at some other situations for winning environmental strategies. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And Cone Resnick, providing forward-thinking advice to help navigate business and financial issues. Visit coneresnick.com. And by France Media, Providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. How would you like people to come to your website to hear the Commercial Real Estate Show? Well, you can now download a free widget allowing your site visitors to access show videos and audio podcasts right on your website. Just visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com and look for the widget on the homepage. You can see how it works and easily download it to your site. And after you load it, it works automatically. Today we're exploring winning environmental strategies. See, I knew this was a fun topic, right? Well, my guests are Robert Bronner, Ken Burrell, and John Spinrad. And uh, Robert, I think some people have a question about environmental consultants and their responsibility. So if the buyer and seller have an agreement that oh, we're going to keep this quiet if we see any problems, what about the consultant themselves? When do they have to report a problem regardless? Typically, uh, we're not required to report a problem if discovered uh, for a buyer. Again, we disclose that information as consultant work product to our client, and then they do um, what, what they may with that work product. Uh, that said, I, I do have um, ethical concerns within certain of our licenses uh, that if I, if I identify an immediate danger to life and health, i.e. a property with uh, contaminated groundwater with a drinking water well on site where um, human beings may be exposed to contamination through drinking that water, I then have an ethical duty because there's, a, there's harm involved to either a human or to the environment. But it's it, it's pretty rare that I would run into a scenario like that. Yeah. Um, it's usually a rural gas station or maybe a, a rural commercial property that's operating an on-site drinking water well that isn't connected to public water supply. Right. Okay. And, John, what if a buyer finds environmental issues on a property? The seller refuses to adjust the price or to take care of the issue. Uh, can the buyer report the issue or try to force the seller's hand that way? I think that would be a very bad idea. Um, first of all, it'll kill the deal. Second of all, you might end up with a lawsuit from the seller against the buyer um, uh, for uh, devaluing the property. Just a bad idea all around. Okay. All right. And, and John, uh, while we're talking about those type of issues, do lenders have some special protection related to environmental risk if, if they own the property through security issue? I mean, they've, they've foreclosed on the property. Do they have a little bit more protection than a normal owner? They do. There's a, a very uh, a lengthy and comprehensive uh, provision in the federal environmental laws that protects lenders um, as, uh, as, as potential owners of the property if they have to foreclose. And state laws, by and large, mirror those protections 
uh, so that a lender can have some comfort if they have to take back a, a contaminated piece of property. Okay. Nevertheless, it's still wise to do due diligence before a lender takes back a property so it knows what it's getting into. Okay. So, obviously, before you foreclose, that if you're a lender, hey, it's like you're buying the property. I mean, Absolutely. You're taking title. Yes. Uh, so, you better know what you're getting into. Okay. I've got a question for John, if that's all right. Um, sure. What about a lender uh, coming in and performing some on-site operation after foreclosure, uh, trying to kind of secure their title, their interest in the title, or make sure there's not a problem on the property? The federal, it's basically a safe harbor under the federal Superfund law, allows you to perform normal operations to continue to run the business and make commercially reasonable efforts to sell it. But you can't come in and, in the words of a famous court case, be a Viking raiding party in, and, and be irresponsible with the uh, hazardous waste that are on the property. Okay, well, we've got Vikings in the show. You know it's a good show. And, uh, and, and Robert's asking questions instead of me. So you know what that means, don't you? Means what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> Duly noted. I've wanted to get that one in some show. You know, so. uh, well, what are some of the environmental issues that may cause less or are more concern than they did, say, 20 years ago, uh, Ken? Well, I'll tell you, from uh, emerging issues or what's continued to emerge, vapor intrusion is still a hot topic um, and continues to um, get to be a hotter topic. And what is vapor day. intrusion? Vapor intrusion is basically the potential migration from the subsurface to the soil or groundwater of volatile organic compounds, um, which may basically reach inside a building or other structure and may affect um, you know, human health inside that building. Okay. In, in layman's words, which lawyers aren't generally good at providing, breathing in the fumes that are coming up from the soil or the groundwater. Okay. So I thought it was a courtesy flush. I didn't know. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> so so. What are some of the issues? I mean, is asbestos still a, a big issue? How has that changed? Well, asbestos has been quantified, and now it's understood how it's managed and how it's removed safely from buildings. So it's become more of a, a building renovation component to a project. Uh, it does have its environmental concerns, and those have to be mitigated with uh, work practice as well as air testing and, and you know, pre-due diligence to determine where the asbestos is. I think the really interesting one would be um, mold. And, and, you know, mold came up in commercial buildings uh, in the early 2000s as a, as a serious issue, uh, especially after Katrina. You know, I did a fair amount of work down in New Orleans after that for the larger lenders out of the Northeast. Wanted to know, you know, what their exposure was to mold remediation and ripping out uh, impacted wet building material. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we've, we've kind of come to the conclusion that mold is just a symptom of a wet building, you know, and that really it's a construction defect issue or a, a maintenance issue. So, again, we've closed out mold as just stop the water. Okay. Well, stay tuned for more environmental intel. I'm Michael Bull. You're listening to the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And Cone Resnick, providing forward-thinking advice to help navigate business and financial issues. Visit coneresnick.com. And by France Media, Providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit FranceMediaInc.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. 
We have some very interesting shows coming up for you, including a show on social media for business, a show on LinkedIn, and two shows on commercial real estate leasing and sales strategies. Be sure to catch shows of special interest to you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Today we're exploring winning Winning environmental strategies. strategies. All right. Where's our crowd clapping for that? (laughs) (laughs) My guests are Robert Bronner, Ken Burrell, and John Mm -hmm. Spinrad. And uh, guys, I'd like to talk about mistakes. What are some of the mistakes that you've seen out there that should be avoided related to environmental issues, John? Well, I think the first mistake is not allowing enough time to do adequate due diligence and, and to absorb and deal with the results of the due diligence if a problem is found. There Two are, weeks is enough, right? Yeah. Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> there are very few problems that can't be solved if you give enough time because there are enough tools that we can use for dealing with risk, whether it's insurance or brownfield programs or risk-based closures, that almost any environmental issue can be solved um, if you have enough time. Yeah, to John's point, it's interesting. Um, the, the, the due diligence cycle got... Uh, incredibly compressed in in kind of the the fast and furious years of 2006 2007 and then it, again it slowed down to where our our deal timing and our our due diligence periods expanded a little bit but as of late with a lot of the distressed assets coming out of the bank there's this idea of quick close of earnest money going um going uh hard very quickly that the the due diligence cycle has again gotten compressed and from Often, actually, last this week we had to go out and do a phase one within a week at, um, mm-hmm. to get a deal closed, and and it's just when you're moving that quickly, you can you can miss things, and you do the best you can, but you also don't have the availability to talk to the governmental agencies, yeah, in with any sincerity or with time, you're rushing to kind of get a response out of them, and and it's good to be able to think about these things before and, you make a conclusion. And Ken, what else should people avoid? You just don't want to ignore the risk, and so many people will. You know, we'll, we'll do that. Just not understanding, um, not having seen the chance of loss because they're not, tip, it's not a uh, facet of risk they're typically involved in dealing with. I mean, you see an auto accident every day, so you know that a car crashes. But a lot of times people just completely ignore the, the environmental risk. Okay. Yeah. I think that's just basic human nature or something you're um, wary of or you don't understand. You tend to put it off or procrastinate dealing with it until you have to. And a lot of times these environmental concerns crop up at the very tail end of a closing cycle or, you know, within a financing due diligence period. And it just it, get, get to it in the front end, quantify it, define it, and then you can get your, you know, your lender, your buyer, your equity group, what I call the warm, fuzzy feeling to move forward with the transaction and close it, not lose it. Right. And here's a reason I think you definitely want to do that. And, John, I'm sure it's a question you've had. I think some people may not quite understand. If you buy a site that's contaminated and you're forced to clean it up, what is the limit of your financial exposure? If you don't use these risk tools that we've talked about, like insurance or brownfield uh, approval, that sort of thing, there is no limit to environmental exposure. So a $500,000 piece of property can have a $3 million cleanup. Ouch. Now, if you, um, if you plan ahead and you put that, if you know there's an issue and you put the asset into a special purpose entity, then at least you have no more at risk than your investment in, uh, in the property. But if you buy it in your own name, um, have personal assets, then you're stuck. Absolutely. Um, running into those scenarios quite frequently um, where a buyer has come in on a $30,000 transaction, 
decided not to do an environmental due diligence because it was such a small deal and didn't realize that the purchase price really has no correlation to what the environmental contamination, legal and financial responsibility may be. Um, you know, there's horror stories out there and there's a small South Georgia town where um, a large industrial manufacturer bought a plant, uh, didn't do enough due diligence to find a problem, and then has wound up with a $30 million environmental remediation issue ongoing concern on a vacant piece of property that they now own because they didn't quantify and figure it out before they took title to the property. Wow. Or even worse, it migrates into a neighborhood and then you've got the whole neighborhood suing you. That's right. Mm -hmm. Which was the case in this, this project. Also the, even the smaller transactions where, um, investor buys a gas station, uh, decides to lease it to a tenant to operate the gas station and doesn't pay attention to what the, the compliance responsibility is for owning underground storage tanks can wind up with a massive problem because of a lease tenant's operation of those tanks. If, if, the release, you know, if there is a release, the, the owner of the tanks, who's generally the property owner, but that can vary, can wind up with a half a million, $700,000 problem. Their lease tenant goes away and then they can't prove that the, maybe the applicable trust fund has been paid into to get cost recovery on that large cleanup amount. And then you've got a, you know, a $300,000 piece of property that's got a half a million dollar environmental remediation line, you know, and financial liability. And speaking of service stations, you know, uh, John, what if a buyer is, is buying a, a, a gas station and the uh, previous oil companies indemnifying uh, any costs related to uh, cleanup, environmental? How can a buyer make sure they're really protected there? The, the the devil's in the details. So when you look at the indemnity from the oil company, the thing to watch out for is is what standard they're agreeing to clean up to. So uh, typically what an oil company will agree to do is to clean up to the standard required by the state's law. But underground storage tank rules are about uh, are among the most lax of environmental cleanup laws. So you can close out a site unless there's a drinking water well threatened or a nearby stream uh, or there's actually floating gasoline on, on the groundwater. You can close out a site with pretty gross contamination. Um, so the, the oil company will have met its obligation to meet the letter of the state law, but you still end up with a thoroughly contaminated site that may not be safe for your future use, may not be suitable for redevelopment. So you need to look at what they have agreed to do and see whether that's compatible with your long-term use of the property. Devil's in the details. You heard it here. Want a moment more from our environmental guest? I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And Cone Resnick, providing forward-thinking advice to help navigate business and financial issues. Visit coneresnick.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is a commercial real estate show. If you're in any business related to commercial real estate, help our listeners connect with you. Post your services and contact information on the free professional directory at commercialrealestateshow.com. Today, we're exploring... Winning, winning environmental, environmental strategies. strategies. All right. My guests are Robert Bronner, Kim Burrell, and John Spinrad. And I'd like to ask you, uh, Robert or, or John, uh, about if you own a property 
you get a notice, or you otherwise find out that a property near yours, across the street or somewhere, has an environmental issue, what are some ways to protect yourself? What should you consider doing, John? Well, typically you'll want to grant access. That's usually what they'll start with, is asking for access to your property to test it and see if whatever was on their property has found its way onto your property. So if the neighbor wants to test your property, in most cases, let them do it. Right. Okay. So what are your risks? I mean, your risks are that uh, if it's come onto your property, that might devalue your property. Um, it might make it harder to develop if you're going to be doing um, putting in utility lines or basements or underground garage, that sort of thing. And, and then, of course, if, if you are in an area that's not served by uh, municipal water and you have a drinking water well, you might actually end up having contaminated drinking water. Um, and then finally, the, the other risk, is, as, as Ken started to talk about, is vapor intrusion. If, if there's a, a, a migrating groundwater plume that's underneath your building, that might pose a risk to uh, the people who work or live uh, on your property. Okay. So, Robert, you so you shouldn't ignore it, right? Should you have your property tested by your own consultant? Um, typically, you can allow the, the, the third-party trespass um, entity's consultant to do the testing at their cost and get the results because that has to be provided to you as public record in the reporting. Uh, in some instances, you want to really pay attention. If you know you have an offsite issue impacting your property, you, you want to maintain some level of ongoing due diligence that it's not getting worse, as, to John's point with vapor intrusion, as well as you want to keep an eye on that, that entity, whether it remains solvent, because the, the worst thing that can happen is, yes, there's a, an identified problem. You get test wells on your property that show impact. And then you don't pay attention for 10 years only to find out that the person who's supposed to be paying to clean it up has gone bankrupt. Mm. And then you go to sell your property and then you have a transactional difficulty with getting a lender comfortable with that issue and, and no one to pay for the cleanup. You know, okay. That's a negative impact to your property value. All right. And Ken, what are some ways you've seen investors profit with environmentally challenged properties? You know, Michael, private equity groups do this regularly and do it quite well in, in working to quantify the risk and use the various risk tools. Um, but to give an, an example, um, in my experience, I saw years ago um, a large, I'd say billion-dollar-plus real estate portfolio that was transferred um, where the buyer went in and bid against four other REITs. Um, the REIT that won the bid was basically used a combination of tools. They limited due diligence to select properties and then wrapped around coverage with insurance. And this provided additional certainty for the seller as well, being concerned that if the due diligence uncovered a lot of environmental issues are unknown that it just created additional diminution in value of the asset. That's right. So they won the bid because they they had a cleaner deal. And they were creative. Well, can you guys uh, share a closing tip for our listeners? I would say that uh, if you find contamination in the course of your due diligence, uh, that doesn't mean the end of the deal. It, it, it complicates it, makes it take a little bit longer, but you can work through those issues and still have a successful closing. Ken? Uh, understand the tools available to you and, and seek advice of uh, competent uh, professionals. Robert? That's right. And I, I just suggest have a, you know, a practical summary of how the environmental um, risk uh, impacts the commercial transaction. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thanks for being on the show today. We appreciate all your information. Thanks for having us. And for more information from or about our guests, their websites and all their contact information is available for you at commercialrealestateshow.com. I have a question for you as a listener. Can you join us next week? Well, I hope so. We'll explore construction, development, and architecture. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. 
America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And Cone Resnick, providing forward-thinking advice to help navigate business and financial issues. Visit coneresnick.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com.